I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The Gulf of Maine to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dog radio I got so many beasts on Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars are standing right here Most pastimes nowadays involve lots of high-tech gadgets. For fishermen, these range from electronic bite alarms to carbon fibre rods, specialised clothing and tackle boxes stuffed with various odds and ends. There is so much clobber that some anglers use trolleys to lug around their gear. Now the ultimate piece of kit has arrived, a fishing drone. The device, called Power Ray, comes from Power Vision, a drone maker in Beijing. It is a submersible that carries a video camera to send images of Neptune's kingdom back to the angler on the bank or boat above. These pictures, either still or video, can be viewed on the screen of the handheld unit that controls the drone or on a smartphone. Those who really want to get into the swim can don a pair of virtual reality goggles to watch them. Power Ray is equipped with a fish detector. This uses sonar, sending out sound waves and picking up the reflections that bounce off nearby objects. PowerVision claims that the system can distinguish between species, permitting the angler to identify the target he wants. The drone can then be used to carry a baited hook to the spot and let it go. Just for good measure, it can also emit an alluring hue of blue light, which is supposed to attract fish. Stay! 
fiction both predicts the future and influences the scientists and technologists who work to bring that future about. Mobile phones, to take a famous example, are essentially real-life versions of the handheld communicators wielded by Captain Kirk and his crewmates in the original series of Star Trek. The clamshell models of the mid-2000s even take design cues directly from those fictional devices. If companies ranging from giants like Microsoft and Google to newcomers like Magic Leap and Meta have their way, the next thing to leap from fiction to fact will be augmented reality or AR. AR is a sci-fi staple from Arnold Schwarzenegger's heads-up display in the Terminator films to the holographic computer screens that Tom Cruise slings around as a futuristic policeman in Minority Report. AR is a close cousin to virtual reality or VR. There is, though, a crucial difference between them. The near-opposite meanings they ascribe to the term reality. VR aims to drop users into a convincing but artificial world. AR, by contrast, supplements the real world by laying useful or entertaining computer-generated data over it. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Cause I ain't 
Beyond the money that we spend on them, games affect the economy in other ways. First, virtual worlds can create real jobs. One of the first people to make this case was an economist named Edward Castronova. In 2001, Castronova calculated the gross national product per capita of an online world called Norath, the setting for a role-playing game, EverQuest. Norath wasn't particularly populous. Around 60,000 people would be logged in at a time, performing mundane tasks to accumulate treasure, which they could use to buy enjoyable capabilities for their characters. Except some players were impatient. They bought virtual treasure from other players on sites like eBay for real money. And that meant that other players could earn real money for doing mundane work in Norath. The wage, reckoned Castronova, was about $3.50 an hour. Not much for a Californian, but an excellent rate if you happen to live in Nairobi. Before long, virtual sweatshops sprang up from China to India, where teenagers ground away on the tedious parts of certain games, acquiring digital shortcuts to sell to more prosperous players who wanted to get straight to the good stuff. And it still happens. Some people are making tens of thousands of dollars a month on auction sites in Japan just selling virtual game characters.
onions. Luther certainly wasn't the first person or the only person to attack indulgences, but I don't think it would have been a Reformation in quite the same way. Because the amazing thing about Luther is that he has this extraordinary courage. Uh, he's able to face down the emperor and the entire assembled estates. And he has an ability to attack people in the Catholic Church, like Albrecht of Mainz, with uh, quite remarkable um, rhetoric and precision. Was he actually taking quite personal risks in, in what he was doing? I mean, could he, could he have ended up being killed? Absolutely, he could have. And the whole period just leading up to the Diet of Worms, you can see that he's caught. He both wants to be a martyr, and yet he's organising at the same time to make sure that he isn't. And the way that he avoided being a martyr is just amazing. And that's because he had a friend in the court of his ruler, that's the elector, Frederick the Wise. He had a friend, Georg Spalatin, who was the elector's secretary. And so there's this amazing correspondence between the two of them where he writes to Spalatin in Latin, but when he writes to the elector, he has to write in German. So we have this wonderful parallel correspondence. And because Spalatin has to summarise all the letters and translate the Latin for the elector, Spalatin is able to craft a political strategy that means that they can get Luther safe.
you're listening to my big bag of onions. Over the years, I've noticed that many of the writers, the poets and novelists that I most like, that I gravitate towards most, I suppose, have been interested in London at night. Working backwards, I suppose, Charles Dickens is the most obvious one, but also Thomas de Quincey, Samuel Johnson and Richard Savage, and going all the way back, in fact, to Shakespeare. And so I had this glimmering sense that a tradition which hadn't ever been excavated before of writers thinking about cities at night was was present and was there waiting to be to be examined in more detail and that i suppose converged with an interest an independent interest almost that i had in in walking about london and indeed other cities at night in order to build up a different picture of them from the one that one gets in the day or at least in the day one doesn't really have a very coherent picture of what the city's like one's bombarded so much and one inhabits it so much in terms of routines that make one desensitized to what's going on around one and walking at night I discovered really almost by accident 10-15 years ago I suppose uh, enabled access to to the city as a whole as well as to particular aspects of the city that, that get forgotten or that hide in corners.
The last time I heard my son's voice was when he walked out the front door on his way to school. He called out one word in the darkness, bye. It was April 20, 20th, 1999. Later that morning at Columbine High School, my son Dylan and his friend Eric killed 12 students and a teacher. But the enormity of the tragedy can't be measured only by the number of deaths and injuries that took place. There's no way to quantify the psychological damage of those who were in the school or who took part in rescue or cleanup efforts. Columbine was a tidal wave, and when the crash ended, it would take years for the community and for society to comprehend its impact. It has taken me years to try to accept my son's legacy. The cruel behavior that defined the end of his life showed me that he was a completely different person from the one I knew. Afterwards, people asked, how could you not know? What kind of a mother were you? I still ask myself those same questions. Before the shootings, I thought of myself as a good mom, helping my children become caring, healthy, responsible adults was the most important role in my life. But the tragedy convinced me that I failed as a parent. You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. I could give you the love you deserve I wish I could be your servant 
wish I could tell you the things that I'm not. Oh, it's tricky one. I, I, well, with the reproduction of Ladybird, um, Book of Kings and Queens, I always push the, the intellectual heights, um, but I couldn't resist it. I, I remember, I really remember as, as a child, as a boy, looking at this image of a boy and trying to, to kind of make sense of that. I mean, yeah, in, in a way, in those early years, that there is a sense of... Um, sort of disconnection of seeing this very small boy trying to make sense, failing to make sense of a really complex um, political world um, with enormous challenges and enormous dangers. Um, I think maybe that changed over time. There's an element of fantasy, though, um, 
to it. By the time he was 14, there's a developing kind of kingly voice and kingly register. There's a tone of um, command. There's an imperiousness. There's a bossiness. There's certainly a bossiness with his friends. There's a hint of finger-wagging at councillors. Um, he's not on the cusp of adult kingship. He's a good few years away from that. Um, and yet, for all the fantasy, there's, there's a sense of a king who was beginning to realise that he had to be in charge. Time as I've known it Doesn't take much time to pass by me Minutes into days turn into months, turn into years, they hurry by me. But still, I love to see the sun go down and the world go round. Dreams full of promises, hopes for the future, I've had many. Dreams I can't remember now Hopes that I've forgotten Faded memories But still I love to see the sun go down And the world go round And I love to see the morning As it steals across the sky I love to remember and I love to wonder why And I hope that I'm around so I can be there when I die When I'm gone I hope that you will think of me In moments when you're happy and you're smiling That the thought will comfort you on cold and cloudy days if you are crying And that you love to see the sun go down And the world go round And around and Menopause is a puzzle. Why do women, unlike most female mammals, stop reproducing decades before they die? Analyzing birth and death records shows that the assistance they give in bringing up grandchildren does have a measurable effect on those grandchildren's survival. But that does not prove such assistance is more valuable in evolutionary terms than continued fertility would be. Two other mammals undergo a menopause, however. These are killer whales and short-finned pilot whales. And a long-term analysis of killer whale populations by Darren Croft of the University of Exeter in England and his colleagues, just published in Current Biology, suggests the missing part of the explanation 
may be that the menopause not only frees a female to help raise the grand offspring, but also reduces competition between her and her gravid and nursing daughters. Next 
Anyone here ever experiment with rats before? Anyone ever ride the subway? Okay, then you've done a lot of experiments with rats. There's a woman named Dr. Ann Graybill who has for years been doing experiments with rats. She's a neurologist. And for years she was trying to get sensors into rats' cranium so she could measure what was going on inside their skulls. This took a long time and a lot of rats. But eventually she got to a point where she could get about 150 sensors inside a rat's skull and she could measure its neurological activity. What she'd do with each rat after it woke up from the surgery was the exact same thing. She would drop it in the world's simplest maze. Works the same way every single time. Click, a partition would move, the rat's free to run through the maze and find the chocolate. Every rat, when you drop it in the maze the first time, acts like the world's laziest animal. It'll like wander up and down, it'll get to the end, it'll see the chocolate, it'll go the other direction. It takes on average about 13 minutes for it to find the chocolate. And for years, people thought that this is because rats are unusually dumb. And that if a rat can learn something, then any animal could learn it. But Dr. Grable could actually see inside the rat's head. And what she saw was kind of fascinating. This is a simplified neurological graph the first time a, a rat's dropped in this maze. There's all these spikes in activity, right? Basically, the rat would like scratch the walls and the scratching centers of its brain would light up. Or it would find the chocolate and the pleasure centers would light up. This is what unmediated learning looks like. So Dr. Grable takes this rat. She drops each of them in the maze again and again, 150 times each. Over time, unsurprisingly, the rat learns how to run through the maze faster and faster and faster, find the chocolate. But what's really interesting is what happens inside its head. As the rat learns to run faster and faster, as finding the chocolate becomes more of an automatic habit, the rat starts thinking less and less and less. Oh, how does he do it? How does he do it? I don't believe it. He's got it right again. I, I can't believe it. It's just unbelievable. How does he do it? How does the mind that I get it? Absolutely right.
In the 1960s and 1970s, amid worries about dwindling natural resources, several big mining companies looked into the idea of mining the ocean floor. They proved the principle by collecting hundreds of tons of manganese nodules, potato-sized mineral agglomerations that litter vast tracts of Davy Jones's locker. At first sight, these nodules are attractive targets for mining because, besides manganese, they are rich in cobalt, copper and nickel. As a commercial proposition, though, the idea never caught on. Working underwater proved too expensive, and prospectors discovered new mines on dry land. Worries about shortages went away, and ocean mining returned whence it had come to the pages of science fiction novels. Now it is back. As Mark Hannington of the Geomar Helmholtz Center for Ocean Research in Germany explained to the AAAS, prototype mining machines are already being tested, exploration rights divvied up between interested parties and the legal framework put in place. Next week, the International Seabed Authority, which looks after those parts of the ocean floor beyond coastal countries' 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zones, is issuing guidelines for the exploitation of submarine minerals.
Well, the worst thing about when I play the banjo, other than the sound it makes, is that it's not exactly a shortcut to popularity. It's sure not a babe magnet, I know that. Playing banjo to impress girls is like smoking meth to grow teeth. And it's all because the movie Deliverance was a public relations catastrophe for us banjo players. Deliverance did to the banjo what the Hindenburg did to blimp travel. Now nobody here today will be in favor of racism or sexism or ageism, but sadly, as we've just seen, banjoism continues unabated. You may not realize this, but the movie Deliverance came out in 1972. And even now, 42 years later, I still can't carry a banjo case down the sidewalk without somebody going, down, 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 down. Cold water, cold water, all My brother, oh my brother, spoke of what he saw. Hello, light, yellow, white, of to the north, a shadow. Very silly article that was written by actually, I mean, 
mean, a series of silly counterfactual articles. You know, what would what would what would the Spanish have done? You know, if the, if the Armada had. Um, um, you know, land, that sort of, that sort of, I mean, Jeffrey Parker wrote a brilliant one, but I mean, people who imagine, you know, how would they have known where to go? I mean, Philip had controlled, you know, <laughs> ammunition and stocks and the defence uh, at, 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 at the tower. So, I mean, I would, you know, the, the gender issue, Elizabeth, you know, look, I mean, I'm writing Elizabeth I. Do you think that Elizabeth I had authority because she was a queen? Forget it. She was in a battle for 20, 20 odd years to establish her authority against her own councillors because, you know, I mean, people wrote books defending female monarchy uh, at the beginning of her reign, saying the great thing about Elizabeth is she'll be a queen who does what her councillors and judges tell her to do, which is a bit like telling Mrs. Thatcher that, you know, she's been made prime minister in order to be told what to do by her, by, by her, by her, by her, by her cabinet. So, you know, with that, you know it's a whole different. That that's that's the that's that's the interesting area of of, of, of this of the, if you want to be a historian of monarchy. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a Guppy production for Cone Radio.